Welcome to the official podcast of Harvest Bible Chapel Indy West. Our desire is to make authentic disciples of Christ who worship Him, walk with Him, and work for Him. You can find more information about Harvest by visiting our website at www.harvestindywest.org or by downloading our app from your app store. We pray today's podcast will encourage your pursuit of Jesus Christ. Good morning. Uh, my name is Nate. I am one of the pastors here at Harvest, and I am excited that I get to open up the Word of God with you this morning. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 15. Matthew 15, we're going to be continuing on in our series here through Matthew. Uh, this is a climactic passage here in Matthew. This is the most climactic passage we've had so far, and that's why I'm so excited about opening up to it with you. Uh, there are five responses to Jesus that Matthew is going to weave together in this passage beautifully, that build towards a question, a question that the gospel asks, the most important question. And the answer to that question will turn your life inside out and upside down. Are you ready? We're going to jump in. Verse 21 is where we're going to start. And Jesus went away from there, and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. This is Gentile territory. He's leaving Jewish territory here for a bit. Verse 22, And behold, a Canaanite woman from the region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. And he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and they begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. She's bugging us. Tell her to leave us alone. Verse 24, and he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the people of Israel. But she came and she knelt before him and she worshiped him saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And she said, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And Jesus answered her, oh woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. This is the first response that we're going to see here in this section. And the first response is a desperate response. A desperate response by the woman. Uh, take note, look at uh, verse 28 where Jesus commends her response. He says, oh woman, great is your faith. And I think we have to ask the question, what makes her faith great? Why does he say this? Well, look at verse 22. I think he says it, first of all, because it's a, it's a humble response. She comes saying, have mercy on me. That's a right posture before the Lord. It's, it's also a properly focused response. The object of her petition is right. See, the object of our worship can't just be anything or anyone. It has to be the right one, and that's Jesus. So it's humble, it's properly focused, it's also, it's persistent. I, I think desperately persistent. I mean, Jesus here, in not answering her in the silence and in the questions, he's, he's not being cruel to her. Is what he's doing, he's drawing out her faith. And she pushes right through it. Like, she just keeps going to the point where she's like, Lord, just help! And then, and then it's bold, 
isn't it? Jesus is like, it's not right for me. Listen, I have a purpose here. I have a mission. This isn't on it. And she goes, yeah, but Lord, um, I'll take the crumbs. Give me the scraps, Lord. I'll, I'll take them. What boldness as she says, Lord, I know that you can heal. And so she shamelessly begs him to do a work. I just think another cool thing in this passage that jumped out to me this week was, uh, was she's a mom. Parents, what if we spent less time, not, not no time, what if we spent less time in the, in the parenting books and blogs and trying to figure out the perfect technique? What if we spent more time on our knees crying out for God to work in the hearts of our kids? A desperate response here by the woman. Let's keep going. Verse 29. And Jesus went on from there, and he walked beside the Sea of Galilee, and he went up on the mountain, and he sat down there. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, and the blind, and the crippled, and the mute, and many others, and they put them at his feet, and he healed them. So that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking and the crippled healthy and the lame walking and the blind seeing. And they glorified the God of Israel. Verse 32. And then Jesus called his disciples to him and he said, I have compassion on the crowd. Because they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I'm unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, where are we going to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? Huh, it's like this has happened before. And Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them. And he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and he went to the region of Magadan. A hungry response is the next response that we have here with the crowds. A hungry response. Uh, look down at verse 32. Uh, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. Three Days. Like, we can't even make it through a worship service without getting antsy, can we? I, I will eat a snack between every service today. Don't judge. Right? What if, what if we were this hungry to see God work? They're coming and they're like, please heal Jesus. Please teach us Jesus. Just one more day, just one more person. We don't want to leave this place. We just want to be with you more, Lord. And what's Jesus do? He heals them and he feeds them every mouth satisfied. And by satisfying their physical hunger, he points them to ultimate spiritual satisfaction found in relationship with him. What if there was no AC or today heat in this building? What if there were no programs for our kids? 
No bad coffee in the lobby. No soft seats. Would we gather together for even just an hour to sit under the teaching of God's word and to worship together? Are we hungry like this? They were hungry to know Jesus and to see him work. A desperate response. A hungry response. The third response that we're going to see is a demanding response. A demanding response. Look at chapter 16, verse 1. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees came and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. And he answered them, uh, when it's evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky's red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you can't interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. And so he left them and departed. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, we see them here again together. Remember, they don't even like each other, but they're teaming up in order to come after Jesus, and they're demanding a sign. Are you kidding me? How many signs does it take? See, it's less about a sign for them. This is more about them testing him and plotting against him. They are looking to take him down because their whole system is at stake here. Their religious system is in danger of being uprooted, and they can't have that. And I love it. Even Jesus is like, no sign, but then he goes, except the sign of Jonah. Oh, there'll be a sign. It'll be a big one. But notice, notice how their demanding response contrasts with the desperate response of the Gentile woman. She's like, help, have mercy, Lord. And they're like, show us. We demand. A demanding response. Let's keep going. Verse 5. And when the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. And Jesus said to them, uh, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it amongst themselves, saying, wait, we, we brought no bread. <laughs> but Jesus, aware of this, said, oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered up after? Or, or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered there? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about the bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of the bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. What kind of response do we have here by the disciples? We have a forgetful response. A forgetful response. How soon they forget. I'm sitting here going like, guys. <laughs> like, and as soon as they forget, then they what? Then they doubt, and then they get anxious, and then they worry. I mean, granted, I'm hard on them. We're hard on them sometimes. We have the whole thing here in front of us. But still, guys, remember. Uh, Matthew Henry says this. He says, forgetting former experiences leaves us under present doubts. Forgetting former experiences leaves us under present doubts. How quickly a little hunger, pain, 
need, or conflict plunges us into a valley of despair and anxiety. It did for me this week even. And in that, we forget the goodness and the mercy and the power and the faithfulness of our God. We forget that he doesn't promise only roses, rainbows, and health in this life. But he does promise his presence. He does promise his his perfect plan. He does promise that there will be healing and joy unending with him one day. Harvest, don't forget. Don't forget a forgetful response. We see a desperate response, a hungry response, a demanding response, a forgetful response, and now we're going to see a supernatural response that leads to this question. A supernatural response. Look at verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he said to his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, well, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. The, the crowds, the people in general still aren't getting it, are they? And he said to them, but, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. This is the question, the most important question that the gospel asks. Who do you say that he is? His identity matters, doesn't it? This is not a, like, I'm going to make up who I think he is, and then he's that. Right? Our world, our culture would tell us that. It would say, who do you believe in? What do you believe? Make it up and hey, we're good with that. That's not what this is. This is a response to. This is an acknowledgement of who Jesus is. His identity. Who he has revealed himself to be. Who he has taught himself to be. Who they have seen him to be because the Father has opened their eyes to see that. There is a right answer to this question. Who do you say that I am? Uh, we're trying to make, uh, with our children, we're trying to make them into little skeptics, okay? So bear with me, this is what I mean. All right, here's what we're trying to do. Um, someday, when they're older, they're going to be out from underneath our roof. And the world and Satan is going to throw everything they have at them in order to try to get them to do anything but follow Jesus. And so it's what we want to do is now, when they're young, Under our care, we want to help them wrestle with the hard questions of faith and life, okay? So we've started doing this, even I was doing this with my little boy, he's seven, Corbin, the other night, and I was asking him some questions. I was like, hey man, how do you know God exists? And if if you don't know Corbin, he's like, he'll sit there and he'll, he's my dreamer, he'll look up at the clouds and then he'll start weighing his options and it all gets very dramatic. And uh, and I'm like, like, how do you know God exists? And he's like, well, creation, Dad. Just look at creation. And then he's like, and what about the Bible? And what about, you know, this? And I came back with a follow-up question, and I said, hey, bud, what if I told you that God's name was Billy Bob? He looked at me, and he's like, 
Billy Bob? I'm like, yeah, what if I said, you know, God's name was Billy Bob? What would you say to me? He's like, I'd say that's a horrible name for God. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, but why? And he's like, well, because he'd have a good name, like Jesus or God. <laughs> and it's like, but even him, I loved seeing how he was working through it and wrestling through it because even he knew there's a right answer to this question. God is not who I say he is. He is who he is. And so I acknowledge that and I say, who do you say that he is? And, Jesus, and Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Uh, something really cool in this passage is, is Jesus has been asking this question very subtly in all of these responses. He's been inviting each of these people to faith. It is so cool. Like the woman, when, when he's silent, you can just hear him in his silence drawing out her faith and saying, come on, keep coming. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? With the crowds as he is healing them and feeding them, as he's breaking that bread and giving it to them and laying hands on them and healing them, miraculously he's saying, who do you say that I am? The Pharisees, as he condemns them and anticipates the sign of Jonah, he's like, no more signs. Who do you say that I am? And the disciples, as they see and hear all of this, and then it all culminates in this direct question to them. And Peter, love Peter, steps up and confesses his faith. And Jesus is like, blessed are you. My father has done this. This is a supernatural work that has happened to bring Peter to this place. And it's not been produced by Peter, it's been produced by God and there's been a softening of his heart and a giving of eyes to see and to understand and to confess Jesus as Lord. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And now Jesus says, now let me tell you the implications of this confession, Peter. Uh, let me tell you the implications of this supernatural response. I am the Christ, right Answer, now let me tell you how this will turn everything inside out and upside down. I am the Christ, therefore, one, I will build my church. I will build my church. Look at verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. I tell you, you are Peter on this rock. I will build my church. There's been so much unneeded confusion that has surrounded the interpretation of this passage. Uh, whole denominations of the church have been founded upon wrong interpretations of this passage. And so what's happening here? Let's walk through it. He says, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. What is this rock here? Some say it's Jesus, and he's pointing to himself saying, this rock. Um, is it Peter that he's talking about here? Is it, is it the confession of faith from Peter, the gospel? What is it, Nate? Um, yes. All right, I, I, I've got a long quote here, bear with me, but I want to read it because I think this will help us see clearly what this is talking about and how to interpret it here in this passage. David Platt says this. says, the name Peter means rock. 
so there's a bit of a, a play on words here. In essence, Jesus is saying, I tell you, you are rock, and on this rock, I will build my church. Jesus acknowledges then some kind of foundation in Peter. By God's grace alone, Peter has just confessed that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. And it's immediately after this confession that Jesus spoke of the church, that he is building upon Peter and his confession of faith. Therefore, based on the immediate context, this is how we should understand the rock of the church, the people of God proclaiming the gospel of Christ. Martin Luther declared, all who agree with the confession of Peter are Peter's themselves setting a sure foundation. This is not to take away from the uniqueness of Peter, but it is to remind us that as we proclaim the gospel, we too are building upon the foundational confession made by Peter 2,000 years ago. The people of God proclaiming the gospel of Christ on this rock, on this truth, that I am the Christ, the son of the living God, I will build my church. Whose church is it? It's Jesus' church. Who will build the church? Jesus will, not his disciples, not our efforts, not our methods, not our power, but by him and his grace and his power. And what will happen? It says the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Death, hell, Satan won't stop Jesus and it won't stop his church. They will try. There's a war going on. We forget that, don't we? And we treat the church like it's um, optional or a social club or a dating app. It's a community of believers meant to reflect Christ as we battle together against evil to bring the good news about Jesus to a lost and dying world. We're God's people on God's mission for God's glory. I will build my church. And then verses 19 and 20, we don't have time to go into those, but what is happening is there's being authority that's being given to the church here in the proclamation of the gospel. So Jesus says, listen, there's implications to this confession, Peter. I am the Christ, therefore, one, I will build my church. And therefore, two, I will be killed. I will be killed. Look down at verse 21. Verse 21 says this, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go and suffer and be killed and be raised. Jesus is like, I'm going to go, and this is what's going to happen. Really? I mean, Jesus had been giving them kind of bits and pieces of this up to this point in Matthew, but now he just says it plainly to them in the wake of this supernatural response by Peter. Now that they have eyes to see the truth of this confession, the truth of his identity, they must know how he will accomplish this, how he will accomplish salvation. And I love it where he says, he must go. Like, it's his choice. This isn't going to just happen to him. It's his plan. He's like, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. Why Jerusalem? Because that's where the sacrifices happen. 
He's like, I'm going to go to Jerusalem where the sacrifices are made. And I will be the sacrifice. Myself in your place. The perfect, all-satisfying sacrifice to end all sacrifices. The spotless Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is good news. There is hope here. He's going to do what we can't do for ourselves. And what's Peter do? And this is, this is good. What's Peter do? Verse 22. And Peter took him aside. I like that. He takes him aside. And began to rebuke him. Saying, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to him, Peter, get behind me, Satan. For you are a hindrance to me. This is a stumbling stone. Peter is being the wrong type of rock. You're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter's like, no way. Can't happen, Lord. Not this way. He must have missed the part there where Jesus said he would be raised. (laughs) He must have just blacked out when he heard killed. And Jesus is like, you're thinking like a human In fact, you're acting like the devil. Get behind me. My way is an inside out and an upside down way. It's a way that can only be attributed to the almighty God. It's my plan, my way, not yours, Peter. Not yours. Victory over death, hell, sin, and Satan will not come through a warrior king wielding a sword and conquering, but instead it will come through the suffering servant. He will not restore things by force, but instead he will restore, he will reconcile all things to himself through his brokenness. His death brings life. I am the Christ, the son of the living God. You're right, Peter. Therefore, I will build my church. Therefore, I will be killed. And I am the Christ. Therefore, third, you must follow me. You must follow me. Look at verse 24. Then Jesus told his disciples... If anyone would come after me, if anyone would be my follower, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. These verses outline what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. He's saying if anyone would come after me, if anyone would make this confession that Peter made above, that you are the Christ, the son of the living God, you must, you must deny yourself You must give up your own way. You must turn from your selfish pride and do what? Take up. This this word here, take up, this has the the idea of a decision, a resolve, a commitment to say, I'm going to do this. I'm going to deny myself and I'm going to take up my cross. What were they thinking about when they heard cross used here? The cross was a horrific form of execution. Uh, It was meant to forcibly humble, humiliate, and submit you. Ultimately, is what it was meant to do was 
to put on display for all the watching world to see and to make it very clear to you exactly who was in charge, and that's Rome. And Jesus is like, I want you to willingly, daily, take this up. This is denying that we have any authority whatsoever over our own lives. And we voluntarily declare our submission to the king. This is intense. This isn't just a show up on Sunday, but I don't live any differently from the world type of Christianity. This is life transformation. I was, I was going this way. I met Jesus. He gave me eyes to see. And so what did I do? I turned and I made a decision and I resolved to deny myself and to follow Jesus at all costs. Jesus is like, this is the way. This is the way I will accomplish salvation. And it's the way my followers must be in relationship with me. This is not, not the way that we earn our salvation. Salvation is by grace through faith alone. This is a radical overflow of a confession of faith. This is what Jesus' disciples' lives will look like. His disciples that confess that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. Question, does your life look like this? Denying yourself, it puts your confession on display, doesn't it? Maybe there's a disconnect between what you say you believe and what your life demonstrates that you believe. Peter, Peter made the confession of faith. He said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And then what did he do? He questioned that it would involve any measure of suffering, obedience, or sacrifice for either his savior or himself. I have to tell you because this passage tells us that it will cost you to follow Jesus. It will. It will cost. It will cost earthly pleasures, pride, finances, relationships, jobs, maybe, maybe your life. It will involve obedience and sacrifice. But you will gain everything in relationship with Jesus Christ. Look at, look at verses uh, 24 again in the following. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Okay, in these next three verses, we're gonna see three fours. These fours give you the motivation for um, taking up your cross and following Jesus. Okay, so verse uh, 25, four, uh, Whoever would save his life, whoever would try to save his life in this life, will actually lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Because, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and then forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in return for his soul? Verse 27, for the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. And then he will repay each person according to what he has done. <laughs> you will gain everything in relationship with Jesus. 
You will gain life eternal and Jesus is coming and all the sacrifice will be worth it. And you will gain eternally more than you could have ever fathomed that you would lose. There is no cost too high for the greatest treasure. There is no cost too high for the greatest treasure. And that's Jesus. An eternity in relationship with him. I will build my church. I will be killed and be raised. And you must follow me. Find the Christ. Verse 28 it says, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom, in his royal splendor. Jesus here is giving them a glimpse. He's going to be giving them a glimpse of his glory and splendor in the years to come, in the pouring out of the Spirit, and even we're going to see next week in this chapter, in the, tra- in the next chapter, in his transfiguration. Um, if you look at the bottom of your page, in your notes, there's one more blank. There's one more response that is happening here in this passage. Is what this passage has been asking us all along is for a personal response. A personal response. You can hear Jesus in this passage asking us the most important question that the gospel asks. Who do you say that he is. Maybe you're here today and you've never made this confession of faith. You've never had that moment where you said that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, and stepped out in faith. But the Lord has been working on you in the past months and weeks and maybe even the past few minutes. Maybe he's been giving you eyes to see the depths of your sin and your need for a savior. Today, he is asking us, who do you say that I am? Today is the day to make that confession of faith. Maybe you're here and you might be saying, like, come on, like, why are you asking us this question? Like, we're the church. Like, we're here most Sundays I mean, goodness gracious, we're here on a snowy spring break Sunday. We believe in Jesus. But if you look at this passage, who is Jesus asking this question most directly to? It's those closest to him. And he's saying, hey, we're family at this point. Who do you say that I am? those that were hanging out with Jesus that he asked this question to. Maybe you're here and you've been hanging with Jesus. You've been hanging out with the church, but you haven't taken up your cross. Maybe you're holding on still to the lusts and the lies and the temporary comforts of this world and you need to drop them all and pick up your cross. And today you need to decisively turn from your sins and place your trust in Jesus for salvation. There is salvation found in Jesus Christ. There is hope found in Jesus Christ. There is forgiveness of sins because of his shed blood and there is joy everlasting in relationship with him 
And now is the time to answer that question. Who do you say that he is? Here's what's going to happen. Here in a couple, here in about a minute, I'm going to pray. And after we pray, we're all going to stand and we're going to worship. Here's what I'd love for us to do. There's something about, that's why I believe Jesus is asking Peter this question. There's something about verbalizing this and making that decision and stepping out in faith and saying from this day forward, I'm going to be turning from my sins and placing my trust in Jesus. You are the Christ. There's something about putting feet to that, okay, and verbalizing that. And so is what we're going to ask today is if you're here and you're like, I've never made this confession and I think that I need to, when the music starts and we begin worshiping, we would love for you to step out from where you are and to go back to one of these doors. And there's going to be some people hanging out by these doors back here who would love to listen to you and talk with you and encourage you and open up the word of God with you and pray with you so that you can know that you are a follower of Jesus Christ on your way to eternity with him and you might be like well I don't want to like it's going to be hard I could crawl over people it's okay listen hear me we love you and so every person that you walk by and you smack into their knee they're going to be praying for you And maybe even one of them will go with you so that you're not by yourself. Maybe you're here today and you're like, listen, everybody thinks that I have made this decision. I've just been here for so long. And and really in my heart there's been such turmoil because I know that I have not denied myself, taken up my cross, and I'm not following Jesus. Listen, we love you. Today is the day of salvation. Don't leave here today without making that step and confessing Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, and he is my savior. He is my savior. Father, you are good. And we love you so much, Lord. And first, I just ask if there is anyone here today under the sound of my voice, who does not know you as Lord and Savior, Lord, that they would not leave here today without doing that without knowing beyond a shadow of a doubt that they are your child. Lord, would you work even now in hearts and in lives and move by the power of your spirit. Lord, thank you for the cross. Thank you for the hope that there is in salvation found in you. Thank you for doing what we could not do, Lord. Thank you for doing it in a way that only you, the almighty God, could have decided to do. You are good. I love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.